Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Rory Smith joins us to talk about his job as the first chief soccer correspondent of the New York Times based in Europe, and the role of the United States as a growing market for all things soccer. It's known in Europe that soccer is a sort of boom industry in the States, that it's really kind of taking off, and we're having to confront that sort of snobbery we've had where we kind of didn't want Americans to like soccer, but we got really offended that they didn't. All that and my thoughts on the latest in soccer, coming up. Take one. All right, here are my three thoughts. First up, this was a horrible week for Arsenal. The Gunners went up 1-0 at Everton, then ended up losing 2-1. Then they went up 1-0 at Man City and ended up losing 2-1. In the course of seven days, Arsenal went from first place in the Premier League to fourth. Even worse, Arsene Wenger's team showed no ability to manage a game or find a leader to push his teammates when things got tough. To make matters worse... Arsenal's reward for finishing first in its Champions League group was to draw old nemesis Bayern Munich in the round of 16. Few teams have a more passionate following in the United States than Arsenal, but if my Arsenal-loving friends are any indication, few fan bases are quicker to say the sky is falling. And that's what I'm hearing right now. Take two. Next up, Cristiano Ronaldo won his fourth Ballon d'Or recently as the best player in Europe in calendar year 2016. Ronaldo deserved it, which is what happens when you're the best player on the team that won Champions League and the team that won Euro 2016. But in my opinion, there's a difference between the best player of 2016 and simply the best player in the world. And if anyone asks me who the best player in the world is, that player is Lionel Messi. The evidence was there again over the weekend in Barcelona's win over Espanyol. After an amazing move by Andres Iniesta, Messi out-amazinged his own teammate, dribbling around and through defender after defender in tight space. Luis Suarez ended up scoring on the rebound of Messi's shot. It was vintage Messi, and nobody in world soccer is quite like it. Not even Ronaldo. Three. Lastly, what's on my radar this week? The huge game in Germany, where first place Bayern Munich and second place RB Leipzig have their showdown on Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern on FS1. Leipzig has been the story of the year so far in Germany, and these two teams are tied on points atop the standings. This is also the last match day in the Bundesliga before Germany goes dark for a month on its winter break, so this game could be a tone setter for the rest of the season. And now, on to my interview with Rory Smith. Our guest today is the chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times. He's also the author of the book, Mr. The Men Who Gave the World the Game. He's one of my favorite journalists out there. Rory Smith. Thanks for joining me, Rory. It's a pleasure to be here, Grant. Yeah. This is quite a title, Chief Soccer Correspondent for the New York Times. Yeah, you feel really smug, but every time someone says it, you kind of, half of you think, no, that can't possibly, that's definitely not my job title. There's no way that's my job title. But I want to get to that, but I want to begin with something else. Your story includes... I am told you spending time in Bolivia, where where all journalists are. It's like a it's like a factory for journalism. No, I when I was eighteen, I really I spoke Italian. I really wanted to learn Spanish, mm-hmm. and I'd always been really interested in Latin America. So I um between school and uni, I wrote to various newspapers, English language newspapers in South America, to see if there was anywhere that would take someone on like a strenuous basis. And there there were two. 
maybe more, but there were two that I heard back from. One was the Buenos Aires Herald, mm-hmm. like a proper newspaper, and it's quite business heavy, but it's for the expat community in Argentina, really, really well respected. And there was the Bolivian Times, which was none of those things. And uh, they took me and the Buenos Aires Herald didn't. So I went to La Paz for a year to, um, to write about all sorts, of, all sorts of bizarre stuff and eventually not get paid. Uh, <laughs> I think they still owe me money. Um, but the, yeah, no, it was a brilliant year and it was, it was totally chaotic. And I, if you read, if, I think my mum kind of keeps scrapbooks of stuff that I, that I, I wrote and I won't go near it because it's really embarrassing. To, I hate reading stuff that I wrote like two weeks ago. <laughs> To read stuff that I wrote 15 years ago is is even more embarrassing. But yeah, that's where I started. Nice. Uh, that's a very cool story. I, and I assume you're fluent in Spanish. Fluent's probably pushing it. I can kind of, I could, yeah. I'm once I get going, I'm pretty good. I've been in Italy quite recently, and it, I tend to be able to speak Italian or Spanish at any one time. So, in fact, I think I probably speak like a mix of the two. That just like a, like a like an Esperanto that kind of gets understood <laughs> by most people in Europe. A little bit of French. Uh, yeah, fluent is. I, I think yours is probably better. To be honest, it's not. My Spanish is okay. I can survive. I don't say fluent. I say conversational. Yeah. So that I don't get hung out to dry when the people actually hear me and they're like, "Oh wait, you said you were fluent." You see, I say that I can speak conversational French on my CV, and that that's just a barefaced lie. So I have to be quite careful with that word. Uh, I can I can sort of read French, but yeah, no, it's 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 that level. And do you know what? It's, it's really cheesy, but in football, yeah, I'm I'm probably fluent in in football Spanish. Yeah. I can kind of speak football Spanish pretty easily, and as long as it stays on that subject, so I'm fine. Once it goes into like politics or like climate or something complicated that doesn't involve words for corner, then I have a real problem. But as long as we're on football, I'm okay. <laughs> so you've worked for The Telegraph, The Independent, ESPN.com, and The Times of London. Now you're at The New York Times since September. Uh, the New York Times has a really ambitious global digital strategy that includes exactly what you're doing. How did you get connected to the U.S.'s most respected newspaper? Sheer chance, as, as everything is in journalism, really. That So I, I came across to New York in March 2015, mm-hmm. and I'd known Sam Borden, who was the chief, uh, who was the European, uh, European sports correspondent at the NYT for quite a while, running to Sam in various places and had to explain to him how... Uh, how European mix zones worked, and remember the look of sheer shock and horror on his face at the explanation. Um, but I went across to uh, to New York to do a story on the start of New York City FC mm-hmm. for the Times of London, and thought, well, it's it, it's a chance to talk about kind of soccer's growth in the states, which is a subject that really interests me. And I thought, well, since I'm here, I might as well go and speak to the NYT about kind of their their soccer coverage. Just Sam had mentioned that that they were trying to do more of it and it was of interest and it's obviously growing. It's known in Europe that soccer is, is a sort of boom industry in the States, that it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really kind of taking off. And we're having to confront that sort of snobbery we've had where we kind of didn't want Americans to like soccer, but we got really offended that they didn't. So I went in not looking for like a job. I went in to, um, just to speak to them about what they were doing and, and kind of how, how much traction it gets and all that. Um, and met Jason, the sports editor, and Andy Das, who's who does a lot of soccer coverage for the for the for, for MLS, and and has kind of driven it, I think, at the NYT. Yeah. Uh, and we kind of stayed in touch, and then then they mentioned last year that they might want to make that full time position, and then it was this summer that it kind of came to fruition. So it was basically, uh, yeah, chance and rather than ability. I think being in the right place at the right time is is what what I'd call it if I was a striker. <laughs> Well, chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times, I'm pretty sure that's the first time that title has ever been given. 
It's kind of cool. What is your job description at the Times? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't know. Um, it's basically to cover. They kind of said to me, "There's no, there's no set. In fact, there is a set job description, but I can't not my contract, but I can't remember it." Um, it's basically to cover soccer in Europe. Effectively, I, I think South America does not count as my patch, uh, which is a relief because there's enough going on in Europe. But it's just kind of stories from around soccer that kind of illustrate interesting things. So some of it newsy, some of it featurey, and there's lots of different kind of term. The terminology is different in the British media and the US media. Interviews, bits of enterprise, investigations, just anything and everything really. It is a, it's a, I mean, it's a huge subject. It's, someone tweeted me the other day and said, it, it's quite tricky, this all of football job you've been given. And I think that's, that was, yeah, that sort of struck a chord. But it's, it's just a brilliant opportunity to do stuff that really interests me, that I think some of it is, is well covered, some of it's not covered particularly well in Europe. Um, the fact that it's for a, a US publication lends another level of, of interest and intricacy, I guess, in that you kind of have a foreign correspondent's eye on your own, own country, which is, which is a really interesting thing to be able to do journalistically. It helps you think a little bit more about certain aspects of football and to an extent society in Britain that, that you don't normally get to write about for, for British outlets because you don't need to, everything's accepted. It's all kind of this is the way things this is what things this is what life is like. Whereas for an American audience you kinda of have to explain, look, occasionally this little island in the North Sea does things in kind of a kind of a weird way and you might not understand it. And it's yeah, it's just a little bit of everything really. So how much different do you assume your reader for the New York Times is different from your reader that you had at the Times of London? Is it, does it change your writing at all, or is it a pretty small difference? So I think the, the challenge is probably that it's a broader church with the MIT. So I'm always conscious that we are writing for people who love football, know it intricately, intimately know everything about it and know in, in a lot of cases more than I do a really educated audience a really kind of enthusiastic audience the thing about American fans that always strikes me is that the amount of football they consume is different to European fans so the majority of British fans would maybe have a, a detailed knowledge of the Premier League and maybe a kind of passing knowledge of other leagues in Europe uh, but American fans I think that's there's if you're American fans who really love soccer probably watch consume a lot more football from a lot more different places right so you've got a really educated audience you also have an audience that's maybe not quite as familiar with things that particularly historical things that that again you don't really need to spell out to to british fans or european fans because you kind of you grow up imbibing it you're surrounded by it mm. there's, there's bits of it of kind of accumulated knowledge that you can just kind of refer to and it's there you go that's what it's like um, i had to i had to <laughs> describe for a piece I wrote on Swansea and Bob Bradley, I had to describe the Europa League to an American audience split between people who knew what it was and people who didn't. And that's a really hard thing to do. I, ha I think the the, ed the editor who was dealing with it said, can we say that they played against Europe's giants? And I sort of said, well, no, it's the Europa <laughs> League. They didn't do that at all. They played in Switzerland and Bulgaria. And it's it's things like that make, make it quite challenging. And then, as you say, so the NYT's whole push is to try and win, win a new audience, and that's in Europe, so you're writing for a European audience. But also in the states, and and I think that like there's loads of stuff that the MIT do on other sports. Mark Tracy, who's the college sports guy, I love his stuff in the MIT. Mm. I don't know anything about college sports, and it's a weird world for us in Europe because we we have nothing like that. So I don't know any of the history, any of the background, any of that stuff. But the stuff he writes, they're great stories. They it doesn't matter if you know the context; it's just a great story. And I think that that's true of football. That 
if it's a great story, you shouldn't need to know kind of the offside rule right. to understand that something is a great story. So it's it's appealing to people who know everything about football and trying to appeal appeal to people who, who don't know anything about football, really, but want to read a good story. And how much of your time on the job is split between going to a big game like Man City Arsenal over the weekend and riding off of that and some of these as we were talking earlier, enterprise stories, feature stories that you're writing? I thought it would be more... So the job of... Cor- the title of correspondent in, in Europe tends is the kind of... Certainly in the, in, in the British football media is what you aspire is what you aspire to be. And it means you go to all the big games, you do all the big interviews, and, and you kind of have this glamorous jet-set lifestyle where, where people fate you and lionise you and you're, you're kind of, you know, a superstar. And... So I guess that when when they decided that was my title, you, that's kind of what you imagine it would be. Without being fated as a superstar, that's not really what I wanted. Um, <laughs> and uh, but because we're, I guess we're trying to do something different. It sounds quite pretentious, but we're trying to partly through necessity and partly through choice cover it in, in a different way to the way that the British media does it. Because we're not trying to compete with the Guardian and the Telegraph and the Times and the tabloids and because they, they have, I mean, it's just me. I'm, I'm a staff of one. I am the chief in a department of one and it, I can't keep up with them in terms of kind of, yeah, and going to all of the big games. I can't, I can't provide that sort of coverage. So we're trying to do stuff that's different, that's unique, that, that tells different types of stories. So I, I guess I thought it would be big games and the pressure to deliver on big games. But to be honest, the focus increasingly is more of the first six months. And listen, my office might tell you that I'm doing it completely wrong. <laughs> but to me, it seems to be the idea that the, the, the stories that aren't being told, the stuff that's interesting is where we'll, where we'll make a difference, is where we'll win an audience, if you, if you think of it in a kind of purely commercial sense. So the focus increasingly is kind of, well, look, you, you don't need to be at every game that you know between top six teams and the other thing that has been really interesting to me is that i think because baseball and basketball seasons particularly are so long in the states and you have so many games that there's this real kind of belief that individual games don't particularly matter mid-season whereas if you as you as you will have done whenever you've been in britain you see the papers after kind of man city beat arsenal and it's the end of the world for <laughs> arsenal it's it's kind of it's all over and everyone's you know vendor out and crisis sort of left right and center the NYC don't see it like that. They see it as, look, this is a defeat, but you can't make you can't make predictions. You can't say this means it's over for Arsenal or, or whatever, or who, whichever team it would be. And that's a really refreshing way to look at it as well, to kind of say, look, this belongs in context. And I guess that, or to me, the way I've explained that to myself almost, is that, yeah, over a course of what's the, what's the Major League Baseball season? 142 games in the regular season? 162. It's a lot. Yeah. So that's a lot. You can't you can't be having a crisis after every after every defeat in a 162 game season. Like that's not that's not possible. So that's been a really interesting kind of contrast that that results are kind of allowed to stand for what they are rather than being seen automatically as a signal to towards either greatness or or, or, or awfulness. You know, there's there's a kind of there's much more of a perspective, which is which is really really nice after kind of ten years in constantly talking about crisis. One thing I love about the New York Times, and I'll be very honest here, I love the New York Times, I read it every day, I have for years, but it's been really interesting to me to see this global strategy and see how soccer has been a part of it, and see that the traffic for these stories is quite good. So when the Times was breaking all these stories about the FIFA scandal, 
they were some of the most viewed stories of the New York Times at that point. I just checked, uh, I think it was yesterday, and your feature on Francesco Totti was one of the most read stories in the Times, like in their top 25. And I don't know if I would have necessarily predicted that, that amount of traffic a few years ago. And I think it's, I'm sort of tickled, I guess, to see that that's the case. Are you surprised by that? I'm relieved because it means I'm less likely to get sacked. Uh, <laughs> the, the, um, I guess there's, there is a part of me, yeah, that kind of, you do still think of soccer and my, my generation until we die will, will of Europeans will be kind of not suspicious of kind of soccer's popularity in the States, but you wondering whether it's a bubble. It's something that we, we will always think. Um, I rationally, logically with my head, you kind of, you know it's not you know that there's there's kind of social reasons for it there's there's demographic changes that have been quite well documented i think that the role of pioneering journalists such as yourself grant obviously but also kind of the internet opening the world up and look americans aren't you're a little bit different from the rest of us but you're not you're not so different and if football is loved in 207 countries across the world it kind of makes no sense for it not to be popular at all in the 208 it doesn't that it isn't it is illogical um so I guess I'm surprised on a kind of the me of ten years ago would be surprised. The me now is mainly relieved, and the me, um, the me, kind of looking at it in the round. I guess it makes sense because I, I mean I don't know the breakdown of the analytics, but the NYT does have an audience across the world. So it kind of makes sense that that a story that stories a story about the the sport that is by far the most popular in the world would would have an have a huge potential reach um but in the states as well i guess if you looked at the nyt's readership and the the kind of venn diagram between the nyt's readership and the demographics of people who like soccer there's probably quite a decent match there i would guess it's it's all it's all concentrated in the same areas i would imagine so it kind of makes sense to me but it's still it's maybe still a little bit surprising because of everything we're told from birth about football in america and as I say, that that weird kind of snobbishness where we we kind of really want you to like it, but at the same time, we don't. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about, I'm always fascinated by comparing and contrasting different sports cultures, including media cultures. In my experience, we get a lot more access to the people we cover in the US as sports journalists than our counterparts in Europe. Have you found that to be the case? And has that changed at all for you since you've moved to the New York Times and are working as representing an American publication over there? It has to an extent. Uh, there's certain clubs who are more forward thinking with their international approach than others. I think that's probably fair to say. So Bayern Munich, who you know you know as well as I do, but they, you know, they're very, very sort of open-minded about things and they particularly want to conquer the United States. So they've been very helpful. Others are maybe a little bit slower on the take-up. Uh, I'm hoping that kind of the more people see the kind of stuff we're trying to do, the more clubs might think this is actually kind of a good thing. So I've done a piece with um, with Liverpool's nutritionist, which will go in this week, where they gave me great access because it's a totally different type of story. And the, the British press would have, to, would have to approach it in a different way. And I think, I wonder whether other clubs might look at that and think, all right, that's, because it's not normal for backroom staff to be allowed to speak. Um, other clubs might look at that and think, yeah, okay, this is this is the sort of thing that is okay, it's good for us to do this. It's okay to let people understand these things. It does open doors because it's the New York Times, it's got a huge reach. Uh, but yeah, broadly, 
it's still European football. It's still not going to be sort of wandering down into the locker rooms and, you know, yoiking players out of the shower and what have you. Andrew Kay, who's my um, uh, who's my colleague based in Berlin who does European sports, was in Manchester a couple of weeks ago for, for a dart story, a brilliant dart story that he did. And he said, you know, can you, can you get me accredited for the Man United game, Man United Spurs? And it took, took about a fortnight, it took two weeks to do it, because Man United are not helpful. But um, he got in eventually and then sent me an email saying that he was appalled by how little access we had. I'm not even sure Mourinho did a press conference afterwards. So it is, it's a very different media environment. And you see that in the coverage. The coverage has kind of morphed a little bit to reflect the lack of access, I guess, that, that has kind of t- set in. This kind of culture has been created and is now self-sustaining where the media gets no access, which means the club's which means they kind of write what they want that's unauthorised by the clubs, which means the clubs get angry and restrict, restrict access even more, which means the, the media has less to lose, which means the media just writes what it wants. And you get this, this sort of vicious cycle where, where kind of the players are becoming, further, are coming, becoming further and further away from the journalists, which is breaking that bond of, all that, not of honesty, but that, that responsibility and that, that sense that you are both working in the same industry from different angles and you both have a role to play to a much more kind of confrontational style where the players and the clubs are on one side and the media is on the other and there is a kind of tension between them which I think shouldn't exist and I I, I don't know I've never worked in the States but I wonder if that exists in the States to the same extent that it does in Europe. Well there is more I think mutual trust and tradition of that here in sports journalism in the States. Obviously it's changed in recent years as players have their own you know twitter accounts and their own ways of getting messages out but it is fascinating i remember my sports journalism hero was frank deford who wrote for sports illustrated and he had spent time in the uk during his career and i think a lot covering tennis and what was interesting was he looked at the lack of access of the the post game quote that we see so often in American sports journalism and thought it was not necessarily a bad thing because he, he, the way he described it was match reports were more like reviews of Broadway shows mm. and told you a lot about the person who was the reviewer. Mm. And there still exists some of that, doesn't there, in the media over there? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm almost... I'm all, I, 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 I completely agree with that, and I think that the the tyranny of the quote is quite dangerous. But Man City Arsenal on Sunday was quite a good example that Wenger came out with this line about referees being protected by like lions in the zoo. Now, whether that's deliberate, whether it was a deliberate sort of deflective ploy, ploy, I don't know. But it just struck me that what the story of what happened in that game was that Arsenal threw away a one goal lead, showed a complete inability to manage a game, and have now lost twice in four days, and I'm having been top on Sunday the 11th of December are now fourth and nine points adrift by Sunday the 18th. That's the story there. That's what matters to Arsenal fans. But what you kind of got from that quote and the front pages and the back pages all reflect this on Monday is this debate around referees again. And to me, that that looked like Wenger deliberately sort of wheeling that out because he knew, he knows he's been here for 20 years. It doesn't take that long to work it out. But if you feed the media a nice line, the media will report that line. And that, that is the media's job. We're, you know, we're reporters. We report what is said. We report what happens. I think the problem is if you become too reliant on that quote, on those press conferences to drive your coverage, you, you A, kind of leave yourself open to being exploited by managers who don't want you to talk about things that 
you know, might be more critical, might be more damaging to them. But also you're kind of not doing your job because you're there as a journalist and it, there's different, you know, there's different kind of jobs within the kind of the context of this, the ceremony of the match has different jobs. So you've got someone there to do the match report, you've got someone there to report the quotes, you've got someone there to speak to the players, whatever. But if you if you allow all of your coverage to be sort of tinted by one line that the manager says, are you actually reflecting to your readers a fair representation of, of what that game meant? Are you are you kind of are your reflections making it through, or are they being kind of drowned out by this sort of huge screaming sort of row about our referees good enough, which is a row we have every week and do not appear to get tired of in Britain, which I find very odd. But it kind of, yeah, it, it's an interesting dynamic. I, I don't have an answer for it, but I certainly think that in, more access is better because it, it, it keeps you honest as a journalist. It means you have to, you know you're going to have to you know, look those people in the eye. It gets you better information, more accurate information. It keeps that channel open. We're journalists are just a conduit, really, to between the athletes and the teams and, and their, their supporters or you know, the fans in general. That's kind of the role of the media um, because you can't have all of the fans going into the locker room. But at the same time, you can't be too led by by what the managers say because managers always think they deserve to win and they always think the referee cost them victory and it's, it's very rarely true. And you sort of think, well, at what point... By reflecting what they they're saying, are you swallowing their line? And I'm 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 really uneasy with that. It's a it's a really difficult subject to kind of say. I'm not, and I'm not saying there's a there's an answer, but it's 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 a really interesting kind of issue. Do you do you is it more important to reflect what is said, or do you get to pick and choose when you decide that what is being said is only being said for a reason and is not actually a reflection of the truth? Right. Well, we're big into fact checking right now, obviously in the United States and journalism, yeah. not just now, obviously, but especially now, just because of everything that's been happening in 2016. And I do think it's important if somebody says something that factually isn't true, if you're going to quote him, that's the big story, then say that isn't true. Yeah, the, well, but it's difficult because so Wenger's complaint was that both goals were offside right. and there's a decent chance that they were. But that's, that's not necessarily why Arsenal lost that game. And you then get into this, I've, I've done this whole thing about this, this sort of post-truth world that we live in now. I think sports has been living in a post-truth world for decades because fans will believe what they want to believe and they will pick and choose the information that they that they that appeals to them that confirms their biases that kind of that they that they would like to be true and they allow themselves to form a worldview based on that which is the same process that we're seeing in politics both in Britain and in the states that everything is up for grabs and it's based largely on tribalism that you will believe what your what your tribe tells you to believe but it's difficult some of it's difficult to you know there's, there's Sam Allardyce God rest his soul, was, um, <laughs> was brilliant for, um, for coming up with wrong stats in press conferences. <laughs> was a big trick. Not, not necessarily to kind of burnish his reputation, but just because he couldn't remember them. So you'd always get these, you know, Allardyce would say, you know, we scored 14 goals in our last six games in November. And you'd sort of faithfully write it down. And then at some point, someone would be like, no, we don't have to check that because he's always wrong. And eventually you knew that as soon as he came out with a figure, to go back and look at it and just make sure that it was right and it was never right. That was Sam Allardyce. Sam Allardyce's thing was he'd give you the wrong stats. Maybe it was like a bet. He was trying to prove that the media doesn't check anything. Um, but all that stuff's much harder now as well because we're, especially, and this has been an issue that's kind of rumbled on in Britain the last couple of weeks with Gary Neville and what have you, because of the, the nature of media and how it's changed and because of the online culture, the digital culture, the need to keep up, the desire for traffic, 
it's really hard. A lot of it, and also because of the kind of lack of profitability of a lot of newspapers, the staff aren't there to do a lot of that stuff. And you are kind of more mistakes will creep through if you don't invest in your journalism. That's that's universally true. And it's maybe not done enough. And there's certainly not enough courage to say to managers in in this instance. That's fine, but you know that's not actually the issue here, is it? Because the managers know that you get like five minutes at the end of a game. You, you can't get into like a big, a big row with them because everyone's on deadline and you know it's tight and it's time pressured and and there isn't a vast amount of time and space to kind of breathe. Question for you: Let's say you're going to set up a one-on-one interview with basically anyone in European soccer right now. Who are some of the people that you find? the most interesting to interview? And they could be people who are really well-known, maybe somebody who's not as well-known. But who are some people you would throw out there? I find managers generally more interesting than than players. Mm -hmm. Not in all cases, but I think managers generally have more to say. There's more to talk to them about. Totti was an interview that I'd wanted to do for a long, long time. That Just because of his perspective um, of, of having played for so long, specific examples I've never really been that enthralled by interviewing big players there are certain times when it's when it's really interesting but often the best stories are a bit sort of further away a bit more kind of tucked away so Karine Diacre who's the manager of Clermont who's the only woman managing a a sort of elite men's team it's yeah. a French division but I guess it counts as elite um, she's and that's that's an incredible story I've spoken to her once before right at the start uh, and she's on my list of people to kind of go back to and say, what's, you know, what's kind of, how's this been? It's 18 months now, I guess, that she's been doing it. And she's she's had great success. You know, she's proved that a woman can manage a, a men's team. That's an incredible story. Uh, Falcao, I think he's quite interesting just because of his his injury history, I think, makes him makes him really interesting. Julian Nagelsmann at Hoffenheim, just his age makes him a, a fascinating. Ralph Rannick at RB Leipzig is, I think, one of the most important kind of... Um, figures in modern football and maybe doesn't get the credit for that. There's a guy called Victor Frage who is works at the University of Oporto, who is, I think, the father of tactical periodization training, okay. uh, which is kind of Reno's big method. And he doesn't do interviews. I've tried before and um I think I might vaguely have a way in. I'm now trying to I'm just giving away all my ideas. <laughs> um, the uh but I think he's he, again like th- that kind of interests me, those people who have who cast a shadow longer than their light, I guess. Yeah. Is really interesting and the kind of people that he's in, interviewed. But there's loads that kind of the thing about football is there's there's so many different ways to to talk about it. There's so many different things that it means. There's projects that I've sort of vaguely in touch with in Molenbeek using football against radicalization, uh, which I think is really interesting, really important. Um, there's loads and loads of stuff. I'm fascinated by. Uh, Youth development and youth development strategies. I think that's really kind of that's the engine of of all of everything we talk about comes from clubs developing players and the fact that especially in England where we spend so much money building fancy facilities for young players and they never produce any. Um, so the fact that like partisan Belgrade churn out footballers, I find fascinating. Um, yeah, there's lo- I, I'm interested in. There's a couple of things in Greece that I kind of want to do and. Um, Serbia, there's a story I want to do. Yeah, there's just there's so much. There's so much to kind of go at. Well, one of my favorite stories of yours was one we talked about when we ran into each other last year in Munich. And this was Pep Guardiola had announced he was leaving for Man City. And you tracked down Guardiola's family and spent some time with them. Could you share the story of how that came together? 
Uh, that was, yeah, so basically I went to Barcelona in January last year, I guess, and um, I was mainly there to do a piece on Messi and kind of find out about Messi's actual life um, and kind of what it's like being the best player on the planet. Um, and I thought since I was there, I'd see if I could get in touch with any of Guardiola's family. And so I basically took the train to San Pedor, which is a little town in the hills above, about two hours outside Barcelona. And I didn't really know where I was going. And my Spanish, as we've established, is not world class. Uh, and I arrived in this little town with no real clue as to what to do. And just thought, right, well, what the, the basic the, sort of what journalism 101 is like, find a bar. And find find the most talkative person in the bar and get them to talk to you. So I did that, and then I went to the the um, the town hall, and it just it was such a small place. Like I sort of said, is there anyone I can speak to? And they sort of about Pep, and obviously he's by far the most famous person ever to have come from that little village. And the the, the lady on the desk just kind of said, oh yeah, the mayor knew him. He went to school with him. So sit down with the mayor of San Salvador and think, well, this is a bit weird just to be turning up and talking to the mayor of a town. And then the mayor was like. Oh yeah, his auntie lives around the corner. I'll I'll go and introduce you. So then the mayor sort of drags me around the town and takes me to his auntie's house. Then the auntie's like, "Oh, his mum and dad are in. Why don't you go and knock on their door?" And she, I think she phoned ahead and said, "You know, he's going to come." And so go and knock on the door. And the mum and the mum and dad are out, and they say, "No, no, you know, we're or we're just waiting for." I think we're they were having their lunch. They said, "Oh, we're having we're having our lunch. Can you come back?" And that that means go away. We're not answering the door again. But I had nothing else to do, and then there was only like one train, and it was three hours later. So I thought, right, I'll get that train, and I hung around for a bit, went back to the bar, and had my lunch, then sort of wandered down again, and knocking more in hope than expectation. And the dad let me in, and kind of on the um, on the ground floor was like a little shrine to Pep, like flowers either side, and like a stone relief with his face carved into it. And I sat in his mum and dad's house for an hour and they showed me all these family pictures and I met his sister who works for the Catalan government and his mum, I think, only speaks Catalan. I don't, I don't think she speaks Spanish. But it was this incredible kind of openness Yeah. Uh, that you, you, I just genuinely didn't... I didn't really have questions because I was thinking, well, there is no way I'm going to speak to his mum and dad. It's just impossible. Um, but they were incredibly forthcoming and probably regretted it afterwards but seemed seemed to enjoy it at the time. And it was... It was a really nice kind of, it only took a day in the end to do it, but it was one of those days where you sort of, you leave and you think, that cannot possibly have happened. I've just kind of gone and met kind of Pep Guardiola's mum, dad and sister, and they've all been incredibly friendly because he is not a man who particularly enjoys the media. <laughs> but maybe that's just people keep knocking on his parents' door. <laughs> one of my favorite stories is that one. It's, it's an interesting job because... On the one hand, this is a very social job, this journalism gig. You're interacting with people all the time. You're interviewing them, all that stuff. But then the actual writing is a very solitary thing. And I wonder, asking writers about kind of your craft, if once you've reported that story, how do you go about actually writing it? Are you a, a guy who gets writer's block? How, how do you go through that process? Uh, writer's block, not really, no. I um. So when I, when I was writing the book, my wife kept saying to me, oh, you know what, how do you, I, used to, I, talk, I basically, I, was, I wrote the book over the course of the summer and I, I did a deal, kind of did a deal with the Times of London whereby it was a non-tournament summer. So I said to them, look, I will work in the afternoon and it's quite like in, in, in Britain, obviously during the summer you have like Wimbledon and the Tour de France and the cricket. So no, no one's really kind of stressing about the football between like June and the start of August. And I said, look, I'll work in the afternoons from like one till six or seven or whenever, but just leave me alone in the morning so I can I can get on with writing. 
And Kate kept saying, sort of, my wife kept saying, are you not worried that, you know, what if you can't write? But you get so used to writing to deadline that writer's block's not an option. You, you just have, at some point, you just have to start. So, and that's what newspaper writing teaches you rather than, I think it'd be really hard if you started in something that, that burns more slowly mm. to get used to writing to deadline. But once you're used to writing to deadline, you kind of know, right, this is, at some point, even if I can't think of anything half decent to write, then I am going to write a sentence down and then that goes. Then off you know, off you go from there. So I don't really get writer's block. I have days when I can write better than others. I think that's probably true. The only thing I ever found really difficult is is starting. And I know there's a great quote from 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 an old an old school British sports journalist, which is that I never spent time writing intros. I just I just started. And I think that I'd love that to be true of me. I'd love to be able to sit here and say I just write things down, and you know, it comes out in this poetic brilliance, but it doesn't. Never comes out in poetic brilliance. Um, I find intros really hard because I, I like to, I like to kind of. I think the best way to get into stories is is always with an anecdote or with a a piece, a new piece of information, and it's just finding the right phraseology. Sports writing can be quite formulaic, I guess. If you you tend to find, I don't know if this is true for you as well, the stuff that you do, but. I tend to find that there's certain ways into stories that I like to do, and if I can't think of one of them, I, I sort of sit there racking my brains, thinking, "No, I can't write this. I can't write this story." And but if, I, if, you, if I've got an anecdote that I can start on, I'm flying. I can write in, you know, I'll do do you fifteen hundred words in, in an hour. But if I can't think of an anecdote, I'm just I sit there sort of for for an hour thinking, "I don't know what the intro is. I don't know what the intro is." And then once you've got it, those first two or three parts, what the, what Americans call the lead, right? Then, then it's fine because you are just writing things in order, and it's, I guess, the training, the training that you get on the job teaches you which order the things need to go in. Do you outline at all? Map out sort of a structure <clears throat> to a story? Uh, occasionally, yeah. It depends. It depends how complicated it is. Sometimes I know where I want to go, yeah, and I know how I'm, I've kind of got it in my head, and I can hold it in my head for as long as I need. If it's a slightly bigger story or if it's a bit more kind of intricate then maybe I'll kind of note down a few things um the other thing is this is a terrible thing to admit I generally find that um that starting writing I don't I don't really like starting not at the start if you see what I mean I know people who will get the um they'll kind of start with kind of the middle bit and then they'll fit stuff around that I've never been particularly good at that kind of jigsaw approach it doesn't really work for me I like to start with the start and then construct kind of a flow of writing from that. But just occasionally, if I'm really struggling, I will just start writing. And then once you're in that process, mm-hmm. then I find that you can that everything clicks into gear. You get into a zone that you can where things do come to you effectively. And it's it, you, if I was a much more um, intelligent man than I am, I would I would say it's something like you're basically giving yourself over to to the story. It's you you become. And the story's there, and you are just telling it, and then it occurs to you when you've written 500 words, you think, oh, that bit, that's the start, that's where I need to start, and then you kind of rejig from there. But I, I don't, yeah, I, I tend to find that when I do sort of just note down a little outline, like a little flow chart, I tend to find that it becomes too complex too quickly for me to think this is neat. Whereas if you're just writing something, and it's different for everyone, if you're just writing something, you are, each paragraph leads on to the next paragraph, and... It may it it the pieces fit together a bit more obviously. Whereas if you, if it's all theoretical, there's too many ways it can go. Right. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm always fascinated talking about this stuff. I, I find it really hard to talk about because it <laughs> a kind of 
proves that there is no science or craft behind it. It's all just kind of just throw some words at a page and see what happens. But also I'm worried that if you kind of, if you have a method, then what if the method goes? What if you lose it? What if what if you forget how to do it? It terrifies me. It keeps me, keeps me awake at night. Then you're Joseph Mitchell at the New Yorker going five decades without writing anything. I'd <laughs> <laughs> be fine. That would be absolutely fine. I want to ask you about your book. Uh, it's called Mr. It follows the stories of English coaches who took the sport to the rest of the world. There are some fascinating characters here, uh, from Fred Pentland in Spain to Jimmy Hogan in Hungary to Jack Greenwell in South America. What's the origin story of your book? Uh, again, chance, basically. I wish I could tell you something something that made me sound even vaguely deserving. Uh, so a few years ago, I bought a book in a secondhand shop in Notting Hill in London by George Rayner, who was manager of Sweden in the 1958 World Cup, an English guy. Uh, and I just I, I was browsing in the sports section of this second this weird second book shop, and it leapt out on me. So I thought I've never heard of this. You you leaf through it a little bit in the shop and kind of think, all right, that's I could read that. So I read that, forgot about it, and then a few years later, a friend of mine, I was at an event with the Blizzard, the football quarterly for centres yeah. people, uh, that I occasionally contribute to, and is run by Jonathan Wilson, um, who both of us unfortunately know. Uh, and uh, a guy, a friend, of, a sort of friend of a friend, came up to me and said that. He'd met a guy. He'd been doing a story. He was in Southport on Merseyside, and he'd run into. He'd done a, a news story on a, a guy in his nineties um, who'd been given the Arctic Star, which is a medal for people who served on the Arctic convoys from Britain to the Soviet Union during the Second World War. And he said, "Oh, it's really interesting because he was a coach in all these different places." And so I looked up the story, and it was. It was like the, the last paragraph. It was like a ten-paragraph ten news story that Alan Rogers had been given the Arctic Star, and the last paragraph was. After finishing his you know, wartime service, Alan coached in Uganda, the Philippines, Iran, the States, Zambia. And I just sort of thought, like, as a journalist, you can't write that and not, and not think, what the hell? Like, what, what do you mean he worked in Zambia and Iran? Uh, so I went to see him. And he was, a, he was a, yeah, a really kind of engaging, incredible story to tell. And it just kind of struck me that, and he sort of mentioned a couple of people who'd, who'd also done it. And I, I remembered the George Rayner story. I think England had played Sweden quite recently to that. And I'd, the game that Zlatan scored four goals, mm. including the crazy bicycle kick. And I'd done a story about George Rayner for the times in the, in the lead up to that game that had kind of reminded me of, of the fact I had his book. Uh, and it all just sort of, I just sort of thought, well, hang on, this is interesting. That the, the, these guys were totally unconnected. And yet they both went to different places with different success. George Rayner got to a World Cup final. You know, he was a, a great manager. Alan Rogers won four league titles in Iran, but, you know, he was not at the same level. And I just sort of thought, well, it's worth looking into this a little bit further. It was too esoteric to write about for the paper. Um, and it kind of built from there, really, that you discovered all these different stories. And they kept on coming. And I just eventually, I thought that would find, like, even when I kind of pitched the book to people, I thought I'd find maybe 20 stories. But there were hundreds of them, hundreds ah, and hundreds ah. of people for different reasons. That I, you could have written, you could have written a compendium of books about them if you told each of their stories. It might have got a bit repetitive, but uh, the, all of them fascinated. All these incredible lives, and they all kind of they influenced people. So they might not have all won trophies, but they all did a little bit. They all did a little bit to to spread the word, to to kind of teach people to play football. And I, I feel I thought that was quite an important. Again, this sounds quite pretentious, but 
I thought it was quite important that some of those stories were told because it's a shame for Alan Rogers to be sitting in a flat in Southport and no one to no one to know that, like in Iran, there'll be fans of Persepolis, which was his club, who'll be like, well, this guy was amazing. This guy sort of was was kind of in the same way as we think of Matt Busby or Bill Shankly. Like there'll be people in Iran thinking, oh yeah, you know this guy's great. This manager at Estadlal now is brilliant, but he's not a patch on Alan Rogers. And it's I think that's amazing that there's just a guy sitting there who. People around him wouldn't know that that was the life he had. And it's, it was quite nice to be able to tell those stories. It's a terrific it's read. A terrific. Really enjoyed reading your stuff over the years, in part because you're not solely England-focused. You obviously know your stuff over there. You spend a lot of time working there, but you're into the European soccer subject. You're into beyond that to South America. We just talked about Iran. And you're into U.S. soccer. I, I met you in 2010. I was over in England seeing Landon Donovan's last game on loan at Everton. Yeah. And um, I think, I don't know, you kind of contacted me out of the blue and we sat down, had a nice conversation, and it was clear that you had enjoyed covering Donovan. It's clear that you've done a lot of work on Bob Bradley uh, over the years from when he was in Egypt to now that he's at Swansea. What have you enjoyed about covering Donovan and Bradley? Uh, well, Bob's, Bob's just a great guy. Bob's a really interesting character. And I, I guess if you take nationality out of it, I think that I like Bob because he he took risks. I mean, he's not, I'm not, you know, he's not, he's not the American version of Alan Rogers necessarily, but he's, um, you know, he's he's taken risks and he's he's stru- sort of stuck, struck out on his own and he's he's taken on difficult jobs. Like Egypt is a difficult job, especially for an American. And then to go to Starbike in Norway and to go to La Havre, you know, he's 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 taken risks, and I admire that. Basically, that that I think there's a lot of people in football, particularly in, in England, but I guess everywhere, who kind of stick with what they know and don't leave their bubble, don't leave their comfort zone, and kind of expect a living based on what they've done before. And Bob's not like that, and I, that really appeals to me. And look, all journalists are parasites, and we he's a great story. And ultimately, you kind of piggyback on that story because you think this is an interesting story that I can tell and people will think I'm good because I've told this interesting story. And it's nothing to do with you. It's They're doing interesting things and you're just telling people about them. Um, so I've got a lot of time for Bob because he is, yeah, because of what he's done and what he's tried to do. Landon, uh, I like the fact that he always stopped in the mix zone, to be honest, and that's not true of very many footballers. <laughs> uh, but no, it was just interesting, I think, I'm, I'm really interested that that dynamic between America and soccer and and kind of the way that Europe looks at the states in terms of football, the way the states looks at Europe. I think that's really interesting. And when when London, that was quite early in in my career when London came to Everton, and it interested me that you kind of had this guy who there was such well a there was such pressure on him as kind of the he was the American football player. Mm-hmm. London was like if if London can't do it then. That's it. Done. He's all. He's kind of all you got. Which obviously wasn't true, but that was the way it was kind of portrayed. But also that the, this this disconnect between someone who was such a superstar in 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 the states, but in England was kind of a less well known, I guess. But still, kind of had this superstar quality. There was this weird interest in London. Donovan came to Everton on loan for a bit, but there was a huge amount of interest in London from the from the British media and mm. from British fans because he was kind of a big name. And it was just a really interesting dynamic. And I think that that's a relationship between the States and soccer and Europe and the States with regard to football 
that, re- that I think is really genuinely interesting. It's a really sort of, it's a really strange relationship, but there's a lot of kind of, I don't know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, a lot of kind of cultural and social stuff that maybe people don't want to talk about, but it's, it's, it's really interesting to me. Well, I can't let you go without asking about the way Bob Bradley has been received over there as the Swansea manager. Obviously, results haven't been great so far. What do you see happening right now in terms of the reception he's getting and what sort of future he might or might not have there? It's difficult because, as you say, results haven't been great. He's um, This is the weird thing. You find yourself sort of, I'm currently supporting, I wasn't, obviously as a journalist, I'm studiously neutral, but um, I was, I'm neither a Newcastle nor a Swansea fan uh, by birth, but I'm fine because I know the managers of both. I'm sort of rooting for both of them mm-hmm. far more than I ever thought I would. Uh, it was the same with Leicester last season where the entire country decided we were all Leicester fans. It's difficult. He's He's been helped because just when things look like they were getting really bad, he's got a win, which is really important. That If you can you can just keep your head above water, you stand the chance. Uh, they've got two games at home over over Christmas and New Year, which will, which will help if they can win those. That decreases the pressure. I've not heard any suggestion that the ownership kind of feel that there is any urgent need for a change, but ultimately they're 19th in the Premier League. If that doesn't change, they, they will sack the manager. They're, just, they're not going to sell 25 players. Um, I think that's unfortunate because... I don't think I don't think Bob is the problem at Swansea. I think he is his presence is probably a symptom of it that they had to change manager mid season. But I think if you look at the squad, they've not really invested for three kind of three years. They've they there is a sense around Swansea that they have allowed it to drift a little bit, that they kind of almost became too enamoured of their own fairy tale and and they've not sort of thought what you have to do afterwards. So they kind of got into Europe, they won the League Cup and they got into Europe. And there was this whole kind of, isn't Swansea brilliant? And then everyone kind of has been too busy thinking how brilliant they are to actually buy any players. And I think whoever comes in, if they'd kept Weedle in, if they'd have appointed somebody else, I think results probably would have been pretty similar because the basic problem at Swansea is lack of quality in the squad. Uh, I would hope that he has a future beyond January and beyond this season. I I obviously hope it's a success. I do worry about it at the moment just because of the lack of quality in the squad and I'm not sure there's anything he can do without substantial investment in January to have a major upturn in results it'd be great if they could get a couple of wins over Christmas and kind of the pressure eases off and you know you, you, you see other teams slip towards the bottom but it's it's precarious in terms of his reception that's been really interesting as well he he committed the cardinal sin on match of the day on Saturday of saying PK instead of <laughs> Pet- and the entire country went nuts and there's definitely a snobbery kind of... He said road games as well. It was awful. Uh, and uh, there's definitely a snobbery. We, and it, it's something that people get really cross about in Britain. But there is a definite belief within, within Britain, and I, I suspect it's similar on continental Europe, but maybe not quite as strong. There's a resentment of Americanization of the game, which is totally ridiculous because like the Spanish don't even say PK. They say, you know, they've got a completely different word for penalty. It's awful. Uh, and the Italians say rigore. doesn't even sound like it. You know, these people talking about our game. But yeah, there is, there is this real kind of cultural, I don't know, separation between hearing it talked about. People still resent the word soccer. People, I'll get two or three tweets a day saying, <laughs> soccer, it's football. And you think, well, no, my dad's 74, I think, uh, and has always lived in Britain. And calls it soccer because for a long time it was called soccer in Britain, and people have forgotten it. 
But there is this real anger. It's a really weird anger about kind of words that Americans use to talk about football. I have, I genuinely don't understand it. But it's sadly, it is quite a potent cultural force. And although I, I know Bob resents people sort of using him as a test case, but it, I don't think that's helping him. I don't think that it's. I'm absolutely wrong, obviously. But I, I, I think people will hear. PK into the penalty and use that as a stick to beat him with. And that's really unfortunate. I do notice that soccer rolls off your tongue quite easily. It, well, yeah, it does. I've, I've partly, I've had to train myself over the last six months. <laughs> but partly because my, my dad has genuinely always called it soccer. Because it's, it's the difference between rugby football and, and association football. Right. And it is a British word. And if you think about all those things that are like sensible soccer, no one ever questioned when sensible soccer was the computer game that Everyone, or uh, international superstar soccer or actual soccer, all of these computer games in the 90s, 80s and 90s. Uh, no one ever says, oh, it's not, it's not called soccer. You can't call it soccer. And it's, it's this weird thing that we've kind of, that a whole country has bought into for no apparent reason that we can't call it soccer. And I genuinely don't understand why. Well, Rory, I could keep you here for hours. I promise you I would not. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful talking to you. I hope we get to do it again sometime. Rory Smith, Chief Soccer Correspondent for the New York Times. Thanks for speaking to me. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Rory Smith as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Bruce Arena, Juan Carlos Osorio, Thomas Mueller, and Gary Lineker. You can subscribe to and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.